Hear these words from Colossians chapter 3, verses 18 to chapter 4, verse 1 from the New International Version. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it, not only when their eye is on you and you curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Hello, everyone. This time I decided to get help so I didn't have to carry my props and everything at once. Thank you, Andy. Um, let's just pray together for a moment. Jesus, thank you for your faithfulness. When things are good, when things are hard, when we are filled with your joy and when your joy is present in the midst of sorrow. Thank you, Jesus. Holy Spirit, have your way among us today. In your name, amen. Well, we're gonna continue our series in the book of Colossians today. Uh, you obviously, thank you, Aaron, I mean, I'm a little biased, but I believe she's uh, the best reader we've had, maybe because she's my wife. But uh, no offense to the other readers, but. <sighs> so. <laughs> but we're in Colossians 3, and I'll remind you, the last few weeks we've been in Colossians 3. Uh, Andy, a couple of weeks ago, talked about uh, essentially a, a, a vices list. And then Bob last week talked about uh, a virtues list and what it means to be part of the chosen people of God and some of the evidence of that in our lives and whatnot. But I think it's important. I want to say these words out loud for a moment. A text, and I probably said this the first time I preached, a text without context is a pretext to proof text. Is that clear as, clear as mud? A text without context, looking around it, is a pretext to proof text. Proof text means you can make it say what you want it to say. Okay? So in other words, I could tell you there's a psalm in the Old Testament that says the phrase, there is no God. Did you know that? There's a psalm in the Old Testament that says there is no God as a phrase. 
And if I read you that phrase without the context around it, I could make it say what I want, couldn't I? Now that's a, a kind of a big picture example, but I want you to hear that because we have to look at the context of what we're studying in, Col in Colossians 3 today to really understand everything that's happening. And so because of that, we look at what very ver beginning of chapter 3 verse 1 says these words. It's just a reminder to you, this is in the section of what it is to be a chosen people of God, made in Christ. It says, since you've been raised with Christ, set your heart on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. So we see that word used, same phrase, twice. Yet your mind on things above, your heart on things above. That's the framework of what we're getting to. The beginning of chapter 3, this whole section is... You're not thinking like the world anymore. Your identity, as two weeks ago Andy talked about, is in Jesus. So now we're going to look at what does that identity as a Jesus follower look like in the household? That's what today's about. What does your identity in Jesus look like in your household specifically? Now before we get to that, we're going to jump in in a moment to the order of the way things are given. But kids... If any, I, I need a few volunteers. Can, we can have adults too. We're going to have a little fun here in a minute with light bulbs and electricity. Uh, I need four kids. So raise hands if you. I, I got one. Yeah, I'm one over there. Go ahead, Sophia. If there's another one, I got. Oh, you can both come. That's. Oh wait, wait. I got one more right there. Sorry, just just one of you. I, I'm trying to spread it out a little bit. Okay, four kids. These are light bulbs. They're each different light bulbs. So y'all can have a look at them for a minute. Now, don't touch them yet. You will get to pick one out each. I'm not gonna let you look at the inside of this, but only one of those light bulbs works inside this lamp. Only one of them. The others won't fit. So now you each get to pick one, and then we're gonna see which one we think works. So we're, okay, we're going to start right here and work our way down. So get in line. Wait, Elijah, we're going to let her hold that one, okay? Yeah. So we're going to start right here. But there's an important thing to make a light bulb work. You got to plug it in. <laughs> so there's a plug right here. I'll plug this in. We're going to test light bulb number one. It's pretty, aren't, aren't each of these light bulbs very different? They look different. They each work in a light socket somewhere, I promise. Ooh, yours is cool and thin. and It's a little bitty small circle. You know what? I got bad news. Does that fit in there? Yeah. Nope, it's not fitting. It doesn't screw. It doesn't work. Well, light bulb one, number one was a failure. It's a really pretty light bulb. It works in the right place. Okay, do you think that one's going to fit? No, that's definitely not. <laughs> you want to try? Yep, yep. That's, it's, it's too big. Too big. Okay, light bulb number two is not. Sophia, you think you chose right? Nope, we didn't. <gasps> Ooh, okay. Clara, you want to see if it works? Does it fit in there? It does. And now all we have to do is flip it on and it works. Okay, y'all can sit down for a minute. Bravo on the choice of the right light bulb. <laughs> she's not going to let anyone live that down. She is right. She is right. She is right. You ever felt that way? Or you've, 
You, you get, get something right. Goes, yes, you can never tell me I'm wrong again. I was right. It doesn't matter if it was 18 years ago. I was right. <sighs> Got excited. Sometimes it's important to make sure you have the right light bulb and the right light. And so one of these words and these ideas we're going to look at in a moment, we're actually looking at two or three of the specific words used, because I want us to talk about what do those words mean in Colossians in the New Testament. So before we do that, did you notice as we read Colossians 3 that everything's given in an order? Do you remember the first person in the household that is addressed? That's wives. Wives. We're going to put wives in black and big. Now, I'm going to go ahead and ask you to, does anyone remember what the second one that was named? Husbands. Now, third. Excuse my uh, writing. I'm going to write kids because I don't want to use that many letters. Lazy. That's, that's, and time consuming. So kids, do you remember what was next? Fathers. After that, do you remember? Slaves slash servants. I'm just going to write slaves for now. And then do you remember there's one other one? Masters. I heard three or four people. So we're going to do that for now. And I wrote this up here because I want you to see something unique this is given in a specific order and it's not the order that was common in the ancient near east but it's unique for christians specifically why do you think this these are the first two addressed because women in other culture in that culture at the time they were seen as way down here on the list they were seen as irrelevant. They couldn't have jobs for the most part. Slaves were actually more important than them in many ways in their culture. And what Paul does right off the bat is most of the letters of the ancient Near East, they don't even address the women. You just, you don't get any, you don't get the, you're not educated, you don't get to hear it. So for Christian culture, they address, not only do they address women, but they address them first. So in a weird way, I want you to hear that in their culture, that would have been very uplifting. Like, oh, they're actually addressing me. They care. Jesus and the followers of Jesus actually care that much about me that I get addressed and I get addressed first. Isn't that cool? I get excited about that. We actually, and that happens multiple times in the letters of Paul where he addresses women first. And then the normal household codes, they wouldn't get, often wouldn't even get addressed at all. So that's the first thing to notice. Second thing is with these two both first, that tells me something. Is parenting the most important relationship or is a husband and wife relationship more important? Good answer. Good answer. If I didn't give that one away. If your relationship here is not healthy, then your relationship moving in towards to your kids and parenting and other things will be damaged. Now I want to pause for a moment, come off to the side and say, if you are not, A, married, you're not a husband or a wife, or you don't have kids, guess what? I promise you there are things you can learn from this. I promise you there's going to be things the Holy Spirit can speak to you. So stick with me, okay? <laughs> because guess what? Paul himself, 
was a single guy. Jesus, single guy. So they get you if you, are, if you don't fit into one of these nice, neat cat. I promise you'll fit somewhere down in here at least. But we'll get there in a moment. So back from my tangent, just to speak to the full people. So we got to make sure our relationship with a significant other, husband or wife, is healthy first. Now from there, we're actually going to see what does that look like? I'm going to have a little more fun, if you'll allow me, with a few news articles. I promise they play into this. These are true news headlines that I found on the internet this week. Uh, and I'm just, just going to tell you, and I'm going to use a different city name so that I'm not throwing this city under the bus. But there was a city, and the article said, I'm going to just use Westland, but that's not what the article says. All Westland restaurants given a zero or one by the health agency. That was actually a title. Now, when you hear that, you go, well, I don't want to eat in that city. Right? Uh, Ooh, that doesn't sound pretty. But when you read the article, the actual article is saying, hey, we're going to list to you all of the restaurants that were given a zero and one are this city. It's not saying all of them are. The content of it is actually stating, wait a second, we're going to give you the list of the ones that are. There was only three. But it was a very poorly worded headline. And a lot of people use the Bible and they give a headline or a phrase. And because they don't use the context, they make it say what they want it to say. And then when you read around it, you're like, oh, that's not what that's saying at all. Another fun headline, true story, a study was done that, and the, the headline said this, it said, snoring increases your probability of death by COVID. It literally said, that was a 2020 article in Europe. Ironically, when you actually read the article, one out of eight different causes of snoring had some links, just some, to a certain part of one particular type of COVID. But the headline said, snoring increases your, th- almost 30% chance, increases your chance of dying from COVID. And you're like, that headline would scare me. I snore, especially when I've got allergies and stuff. I'm sure plenty of you snore, I mean, seven out of eight other reasons that weren't studied at all for snoring, right? So the headline that often gets used now that we're coming back into this passage right here, the headline I've heard this used, maybe this is more about where I grew up in Texas. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands are in charge. Women, you got to just let them be in charge. That's the way that was used where I grew up. Now, not by in my family. My parents didn't like kind of have that you're under my thumb mentality, but I saw it and I grew up around it. And here's what I want to share with you is I want to actually look at the word submit and this phrase and look at this in the fullness of the picture of what's being said and then what is said for the husbands. First thing you'll notice, it does not say husbands make your wives submit to you. Did you catch that? That's different. It's not addressing husbands. This is in a very real way. He's talking specifically to the wives, husbands, you shut your ears. This is just for them. And then the husbands, this is just for you. 
You're not supposed to take this and go, ha, hey, you're supposed to. No, no, that's not what it says. It doesn't say husbands make your wives submit. It also doesn't say wives make your husbands love you. Okay? That's an important distinction. But then in the phrase, it says this word. I got to get to the next section over. Here we go. Wives, submit yourselves to your husband as fitting in the Lord. Why would that be fitting in the Lord? What do you think? Why does it have that phrase, as fitting in the Lord? Why is that fitting in the Lord? How does submission fit with the Lord Jesus? Love? Do what? Mm, Not submitting to anything that is wrong or harmful or hurtful. Surrendering your desires. Oh, I, I love... So as fitting to the Lord, well, let's look at what the Lord does. Does Jesus himself submit? So I'm going to turn to John 6. Yes, he does. And this is something that has been stated for many years in many denominations. 6, verse 38 to start. You could read around it. But Jesus' words in John 6, 38 are, For I have come from heaven not to do my will, but the will of the one who sent me. His is the will that has sent me. So Jesus comes and he says, I, I, I want to do the will of the Father. If you think that's just in John 6, you can look in about three other places just in the Gospel of John. We're not going to go to every one of them that he says, I come to do the will of my Father. I'm submitting to the will of the Father. There's a great uh, architecture painting from over a thousand years ago. It's got a picture of the Trinity and each one is pointing to the other, submitting to one another. It's a beautiful picture. Where you've got Jesus submitting the Father, the Father submitting to the Spirit, the Spirit submitting to the Son who's submitting to the Father, and then just like, I'm going to point at you, and then you're going to point at you, and I'm going to do what you want, and you're going to... It's this beautiful picture in the Godhead of submission in Scripture. And we believe that in our Christian Orthodox teaching all the way back to the first century, we do not affirm a hierarchy in Father, Son, and Spirit, that they are all equally and co-equally God. So if Jesus submits, to submit to your husband the way Jesus submits to the Father, as in, is fitting in the Lord, is not a derogatory term. I want you to hear that. It's not meant to be a negative term. Because you're imaging Jesus. That's how you're imaging Jesus, is submitting the way he submits. Uh, another thing to bring up is another letter of Paul in Ephesians Uh, And that's one I also like to talk about in Ephesians 5. He uses the same language, but this is verse 21 and 22. In verse 22, it says, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as unto the Lord. Can I give you a little secret? The word submit in verse 22 in the Greek isn't there. It's not there. Read verse 21 of Ephesians 4, or Ephesians 5, excuse me, and it says, submit one to another out of reverence for Christ. And in Greek, what they do is they're taking a technique and borrowing the verb from the sentence before. That means you want it all to be read together. So in Ephesians, it starts with submit one to another out of reverence for Christ. And then, wives, Wives under your husbands is literally what it said. So it's implying the submit from before. Wives, 
the way we just talked about everyone submitting, you to your husbands, and then later it gets about husbands loving your wives, and that is a unique type of submission actually for husbands too. Get there in a second. We're almost there. Um, but the other thing that is important for me specifically when the Lord just stirs this up in my heart is I, I want you to hear not just is there a sense of yeah, submission does not mean secondary, less than, underneath. Just like Jesus and the Father are one, there's still a co-unity and equalness. Even in the Old Testament, that is true. You've heard in Genesis chapter 2, 3, some of the story of Adam and Eve, and God creates Eve, and he calls her a helper, right? Does that sound familiar to a few people? That word is the word ezer in Hebrew. Can you say ezer? You heard the word Ebenezer? That part of Ezer, that means a helping stone. The word Ebenezer is a helping stone. A stone to remember God helped you. That was what an Ebenezer was. Ezer is the word helper. Do you know what other character other than Eve that that word Ezer is used with, who that is used with in the Old Testament? Other than Eve. Hmm. I hadn't heard it yet. God. God is the helper of Israel. More than 16 times that word is used for God in the Old Testament. So in the Old Testament, the character Eve is helper for her husband and God is helper for Israel. Now I'm assuming you don't think God is secondary to Israel, correct? So we can't assume that the same other time that word used Eve is less than or secondary to Adam. From the beginning, there's a co-equalness working together, unique, but working together in harmony. Father and son, Jesus, they're unique, but they're one. You with me so far? It's, 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 hopefully, you're sticking with me in this. Um, the other thing I love about this image in the Old Testament, particularly of helper and coming alongside is have you ever noticed when the power struggle or this idea of uh, wives underneath or husbands over, do you know where that comes from? Original sin. Star for Roxanne. <laughs> right at the beginning of Genesis, after sin enters the world, do you know what one of the punishments is? Genesis 3 God says to the woman, I will make your pains in childbearing severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to your children. Your desire will be for your husband and he will now rule over you. So until sin had entered the world, there was no power struggle in a marriage. There was no ruling over. That's a byproduct of sin. So if the Holy Spirit fills you and I and Jesus has overcome sin in our hearts and we as free Methodists believe from John Wesley and on, we believe God can free you from the power of sin. If part of the power of sin is a power struggle in a marriage, then if we can be free of that, should there be a power struggle in our marriages today? No. Now, we as Wesleyans, free Methodists, we can affirm that. People who don't believe you can be free of the power of sin, well, they can't affirm that because the Holy Spirit is the one who gives us the ability to be free of that power. So that's some of the wives submit to your husbands 
is this, the same posture of Jesus. That's what it looks like for a wife to be like Jesus. It's like, okay, G- Father, what is your will? And I trust your will because you love me more than you could e- I could ever know. The Father loves the Son, right? That agape love. That's why he can submit, because he trusts fully. He knows he can trust. Now we get to husbands. Husbands, I've got to be honest with you, our job is actually harder. It says, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Do you know there's four different words in the ancient Greek text for the word love? Four different Greek words for the word love. We translate love. Hey kids, I got a question for you. Anybody listening? Do you like cheeseburgers? Do you love, do you love cheeseburgers? Do you love the cheeseburgers the same way you love your mom or dad? Maybe not the same kind of love. If, if I had said candy bar, maybe, maybe, right? I mean, we just, we're coming off of Halloween this week, so maybe the, there's some candy highs of people. Man, I love a Snickers way better than I love my mama. What are you talking about? I do not. Mom, I love you. But we use love so interchangeably. I love the Texas Rangers. Don't be mad at me, Tigers fans. This is the first time in history we won a World Series this, year, this week. Ah, I was hoping I'd get a chance to put that in there. But I love a Texas Rangers not the same way I love my wife, not the same way I love my kids, not the same way I love Indiana Jones. They're all different kinds of love. But in Greek, we nuance those out. They're different. So in Greek, you've got a love between the husband and wife. That's the word eros in Greek. Very unique. There's philo, P-H-I-L-O, which is where we get our word Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, right? That philo, Greek word, is the love between close friends, right? There's this word storge, S-T-O-R-G-E, in the Greek, that's love between family. That's not husband and wife, so me and my sister, me and my kids. But those are not the words used for the husband to love his wife. They could have used the word that is the, literally the word eros, husbands love your wife, or the familial one. They could have used either of those, but that's not the word they use. Husbands, you love your wives agape, that unconditional, the love of Jesus. How did Jesus love the church? Give me some examples. How does Jesus love the church? He died for them. He adorns the church as his bride. How else does he love the church? Does he give us a say in everyday life? He lets us talk to him. I I can tell you he was calling us to Michigan. But in that whole process, because of the free choice he's given me, I could have said, no, I'm good. And he would have honored that because he loves me. It wouldn't have been what is best for me But because he loves me, he would have honored it. So he loves the church that way, that he's willing to die for her, to adorn her with robes and be his bride, all beautiful, to brag on her. Husbands, that is a a radical love you and I can't do on our own. We gotta have the Holy Spirit to love our wives and surrender so much that we're willing to die for them. 
to put their needs above our own, their desires above our own. God cares so much about the small things. I didn't get a chance to know Tom super well, but from what I get, I've known and what I've, the few times I got to talk with him and what I heard, man, he loved, wow. That's an example of agape love. And I'm honored that I got to see glimpses of that. And I know some people in my life, I've seen some husbands who love their wives. Well, this essentially, we talked about wives submit, that's what it looks like for you to be Jesus. Husbands with that agape love, that's what it looks like for you to be Jesus in your family. I'll give you a little spoiler. Every one of these is really just telling you what it looks like for you to be Jesus to your home. We don't need to read into it too much like, well, this, this is what it means to submit. This is, what, this is what it means to be Jesus to your spouse, to be Jesus to your kids, kids to be Jesus to your parents. That's what this boils down to. It's helping you nuance out the love of Jesus in your relationships, in your home. Guess what, kids? The next one, the guy writing this specifically is talking to kids. It's okay, I need all the parents Cover your ears. It's not for you. It's just for the kids. I don't see adults. Adults. Cover those ears. Kids, are you listening? This is for you. It says these words to you. Are you listening? Listen really well. Kids, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Do you know, he actually wrote a phrase just for you kids. Obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Okay, parents, you can open your ears now. I don't want to... If you sit there and do that forever, you'll fall asleep. Now, kids, is it easy to obey our parents all the time? No. I'm, a, I'm still a kid. I still have parents that it's not easy to obey even as an adult. But why do you obey? Did you notice, kids? Why does it say? Did you hear it? Obey because it's pleasing to who? Pleasing to the Lord. One of the ways even you as kids can honor Jesus is to try to honor and obey when your parents talk to you and ask you to do things. And guess what? If your parents are loving with this agape love and they have a healthy relationship, it's going to be a lot easier for you to obey them because it's going to come from a healthy and holy place. The parents are, which is why they've got to be good before we get to there. Now after the kids uses this phrase, fathers. You're, if you have a study Bible, you may just notice at the bottom, we're not going to go into great detail on this, but this is the way in traditional household addresses, uh, not just Christian, that they were, would address the parents in the home. The fathers were the authority figure at the time, so they would just say fathers, but what was meant and understood in every, even in Christian culture, and some translations actually say fathers and mothers or parents. So I want you to hear, this is not allow mothers in the room or any parent figures, because we have parent figures for our kids that is not just us. Amen? <laughs> parents, we need those other parent figures. This is for all of us who have a parent-like person. Like, I see four adults sitting at the table with two kids. Each one of you, who pour, I know at times you pour into these kids. And I know at times people pour into my kids. 
And you also need to hear this too. Maybe you don't have kids of your own. But what does it say to those people? Fathers, or mine at the bottom, Eddie Evans says, parents, do not embitter your children that they would become discouraged. Do not provoke your children is another way to translate that word as well. And what's the purpose for that? Don't get them discouraged. Did you notice that? That's the ultimate root of it. Don't discourage your kids. Because if you're discouraging your kids, in a way, what are you doing? You're actually doing what some of the people I grew up with did with their wives. You're just pushing them down. You're not giving them a voice. You're not loving them with the love of Jesus that says, yeah, I'm going to meet you where you're at, and I'm going to surrender, and I care about your desires. Tell me. Why do you think numerous times in the Gospels, when people, Jesus encounters a blind guy, and when he's heading into Jerusalem, and he says to him, what do you want? basically. It's like, what do you want me to do for you? That's a duh question. The guy's blind. I don't, I don't mean that to be irreverent. Jesus often invites people into the conversation because he wants them to feel heard. He, you know, someone comes down through the ceiling. Okay, so what's going on? They literally just drop someone down who can't walk. <laughs> he knows this. God does this in Genesis, right? With Adam and Eve. He's walking in the garden and he says, so uh, where are you guys? This is God. (laughs) It's not like he doesn't know where they're at. But he wants them to speak up. He wants them to own something. He wants you to feel encouraged. The same way that God parents us, we need to parent our kids. Let them feel encouraged. Let them be heard. It doesn't mean they get to do whatever they want, whenever they want. God doesn't do that with us. If he did, I would be in a lot of trouble. Bob would be in a lot of trouble. I've heard some of his stories. I jokingly told him I might share them, but I'm not going to. It's okay. So God puts parameters because he loves us, but they're parameters that encourage us, do not discourage us. So anything that might embitter or provoke in your children that they would become discouraged, I encourage you to check your heart today. As parents or those who pour into kids, I mean, we've got people who are not parents who pour into our kids weekly over here in our children's area. We need to check our hearts as anyone who pours into kids regularly that we are encouraging, but, but we're not enabling Fair enough. That's what it looks like to be Jesus to your kids. You notice a theme? This is all about what does it look like to be Jesus? Jesus is encouraging. How many times could he push down the disciples if he wanted to when they did really stupid stuff? You got some recollection popping in your head? (laughs) But for the most part, outside of a spiritual something going on, he doesn't speak down to them or discourage them. He's actually encouraging to them. Still correcting when needed, but encouraging. Now we move to the slaves section. Slaves. It gets into obedience even more. This is actually the longest part of the section given. Did you notice it actually has the most verses given to the slaves slash servants or bond slaves? Part of the reason for that 
is because it's so radically different than the world. Remember verse 1 of chapter 3, we said, set your minds on things above, set your heart on things above. We're thinking God weighs now. How do you submit the way Jesus submits? How do you love the way Jesus loves? How do you obey the way Jesus obeys? How do you encourage the way Jesus encouraged? How do you serve the way Jesus served? Mark 10, I believe, verses 43 to 45, I think. You can tell me if I'm wrong later. But I think that's when Jesus says, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom. He came to be a slave. So he was so obedient and so loving, so all these other things that he was willing to do whatever was necessary for us. So as a slave, our hearts, anyone who is serving, and this doesn't just mean in the household today, because we don't have slaves the way they did. Even slavery in the 1800s, 1700s, was not slavery of the New Testament. They're very different things. Even slavery of the Old Testament. You could be a slave, and after about seven years, you were actually able to be set free and given land. That was one of God's commands. Interesting. Or you could choose if you really liked your master to be a master. Maybe he gave you a wife or something. And it, there's, we could go down a trail on that. It's not the same slavery as what the atrocities that many of our brothers and sisters around the world have experienced in the 17, 18, early 1900s and are still experiencing in some countries. That's not the same thing. This is a different kind of slave. The slave that actually got a working wage often in the home. But this kind of service, you're supposed to obey with the fullness of your heart, with sincere hearts, the way Jesus did. Not going to the cross and, I don't want to die for these people. Jesus doesn't do that. He has, an, he has a, such a generous heart that he's like, man, I'm doing this. These people are worth it. And so when you obey, you obey as unto the Lord. At your job, unless they're calling you to do something or asking you to do something that's not in line with the heart of God, you obey as unto the Lord. That's not easy to do at work. Man, you guys don't know my boss here. Just kidding. <laughs> Seriously, I know I've worked in places outside of the church. And it's not easy sometimes to have that sincere heart and obey when people who are above you tell you, you got to do this or you got to do that. And as long as it's not going against the morals that Jesus and the Spirit prompt inside of you, jump at it with a sincere heart. And finally, we get to the master's part. I didn't mention also, you'll actually be rewarded. Did you notice? It says that in the slave section, that as you obey, there's going to be a reward. Uh, you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. That's the specific one that actually gets, tells us a benefit out of it. You obey with sincere hearts, there'll be a reward for it. We don't get the benefits of all that detailed out. So masters, we end with this section. And it's why we read verse 1 of chapter 4. Because it finishes the section saying, Masters, provide for your slaves with what is right and fair because you know you have a master in heaven. So this whole section ends by, yes, you're supposed to be just, right, 
treat fairly the way that Jesus treats us, that's how you're supposed to treat your servants. And guess what? As a subtle little, I love Paul's language here, just really subtle at the end. He's like, um, just a reminder, really to all of you, you have a master in heaven. So if you're not being Jesus the way you're supposed to in the household, remember there's someone over you no matter who you are. And remember what he did for you on the cross. And let that be a framework for how you submit, love, obey, encourage, not discourage or provoke. Obey with a sincere heart and be just and right towards everyone that's underneath you or that you encounter. Quick interactive question. I asked the kids this earlier about obedience. Is it easy? And they said, no. Is this easy? Both right answers. It was a trick question. See what you did there? Not in your own power. But if you invite the Holy Spirit every day, when you wake up and you say, Holy Spirit, I give, I submit, I surrender the way that Jesus surrenders. I have that surrendered heart and I want to love my wife. This is what every morning, fill me, Holy Spirit. Help me to love her in a, with a love that I don't have the capacity to do on my own. And I believe, because I've seen it, that she gets up and she prays the same kind. Lord, let me be who you want me to be in, in my relationship to my kids as I parent, my relationship to my husband. And then there's not a power struggle. In our, I mean, truthfully, in, in our, there doesn't have to be. That's still some of the remnants of sin in the world. It's really just this beautiful working together in love and life. The way the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, the Spirit work together. I want to close with a quote. And I can't remember. This is one of my favorite quotes. I, I actually have it taped in the front of my duct tape Bible. So, uh, I've shared this in one or two sermons in the last four or five years. I might have shared it earlier this year. I can't remember. But this was on my heart to share because it really gives you a picture of what God's doing here with the household and us as individuals. The world looks at husbands, wives, kids, everything in one way. And workers and employees, employers, the Lord looks a completely different way than the world does. He says, I want you to see things with, with my eyes. And this is a quote from C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right, stopping the leaks in the roof, and so on. You knew those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house in a way that hurts abominably and doesn't seem to make any sense. What on earth is Jesus up to? The explanation is that he's building quite a different house from the one you thought of, or in my opinion, from the one the world would want you to build. He's throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, 
as the world sees fit, but he's building a palace that he intends to live in himself. That's what he's doing in us as individuals. That's what he's doing in our families. That's what he's doing in this church right here. It's not what I want it to look like. Andy wants it to look like. Bill, 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 or Bill wants it to look like. It's what Jesus wants it to look like, period. That's what we're about. That's what this passage is about. Jesus, what do you want it to look like? If that means taking a wing out or doing something in my heart. And people have looked at me before, surprise, said, wow, you're you're different. (laughs) It's like, I'm doing what Jesus has asked me to do. Sometimes they look at, my marriage or something else. And I, I, you know, sometimes I don't know if that's good or bad, but you're different. It's like, cool, Jesus was different. I'll take it. And that's the heart of all of this. And we see this heart best exemplified in communion. We're going to get to do communion here in a moment. A God who says, yeah, I came not to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many. Right? I came to be obedient unto death on a cross. Recognize that scripture? So now we got these two. He submits to the will of the Father and says, yes, not my will, but yours be done. In the garden, oh, we got that. Agape love is all over Jesus. God is love. And yet this passage even says he's the master. So our master gave himself up for all of us. Surrendered to the spirit to be able to live into something that we can't do in our own power. So I just invite you to take a posture for a moment. Just close your eyes, posture. Think about what this table means. Think about the different roles you have in the household. Jesus. We thank you that you show us what it is to be the perfect Example, surrendered to the will of the loving, all-powerful God. And you care about each of us, whether we're kids or adults or anywhere in between, that we image you. And so you speak to each of us in our different situations. Holy Spirit, give us the heart that as we have such an identity in you, that we have the servant heart like you did under the cross. That we have the surrendered heart like you did that said, Lord, I know your love for me, so I surrender not my will, but yours be done. Give us that heart as parents, as children, as husbands and wives, as masters and servants. May people look at us and say, yeah, that they know Jesus. Thank you, Lord. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.